Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show number 479. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We are on the final week of our translation specials and this story was originally published or written in Hebrew and has been translated into English. So I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. First up is Mr JJ Campanella with his science news at the end of the month. Then the main fiction, it is Benjamin Schneider's Little Greys by Niri Yanev, translated by Lavi Tidar. So that is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So jumping straight in, Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news for March. Greetings and morphotractic ululations, my metamodular listeners, and welcome to this March 2017 Science News Update. I'm your host for this meretriciously dissolute science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. As I said last month, this year is running away from me. Okay, so it's the end of March. I was once told a theory that suggested that as you get older, time seems to go faster from year to year because you have lived a higher percentage of your life. Well, that's fine and dandy, but it presupposes that humans evolved that way. Knowing how long they were going to live? It doesn't make any sense to me. Is our sense of time passing faster as we get older something that didn't evolve? Or is it a just weird artifact of the modern age? Does it have something to do with responsibilities of being grown up and being responsible for a family and a career? Is this something else? If lifespan of humans became 200 years, does that mean that this middle age speed up will occur at the age of 100? Or will it start at about 50 as it does now and only go that much faster as you hit 100 or 150 years of age? And if the average lifespan was 40 a thousand years ago, does that mean that this weird speed up of time we experience in middle age didn't even occur to humans until they started living long enough to experience it? Or did it occur in people's 20s in the year 1000? At this point, I suspect the entire listening audience just wants me to stop. So I will. First actual story of the evening. This is an update from the FDA stuff that I mentioned last month. Much as many of you dislike President Trump for his immigration policies, you got to give the guy some kudos for some of the other stuff he is attempting, though maybe tilting at windmills in the end. This story was reported in the Genetic Engineering News March 1st. A month ago now, in an address to the U.S. Congress, 
President Trump gave a speech that was widely praised for its gentler tone than much of his recent public rhetoric. Nicer as it was in tone, however, the president saved up much of his usual vehemence, oddly enough for the FDA, which, as you've heard me say, is probably deserving of those broadside barrages. Trump wove into his address the story of 20-year-old Megan Crowley, a Notre Dame sophomore who was among the guests invited to sit with First Lady Melania Trump for the speech. Crowley's life was saved from a lethal genetic disease by a treatment developed by the company Novozyme Pharmaceuticals. Novozyme was acquired in 2001 for $137 million by Genzyme, which in 2011 was bought by Sanofi for $20 billion. <laughs> the drug was recently approved for use in humans, but it basically took about 15 years for that to happen. Now, remember, the drug was invented at a company that has technically existed for 16 years. Trump said at his speech, quote, our slow and burdensome approval process at the Food and Drug Administration keeps too many advances, like the one that saved Megan's life, from reaching those in need. If we slash the restraints, not just at the FDA, but across our government, then we'll be blessed with far more miracles like Megan, unquote. The FDA is now led by an acting commissioner, Dr. Stephen Ostroff, pending U.S. Senate confirmation of a permanent commissioner. The president has still not nominated a permanent successor to the last director, Dr. Robert Califf, who left office the day Trump was sworn in. Some politicals have accused Trump of doing this on purpose so he can get around the Senate confirmation process. Trump's call for a speedier drug approval process echoes the comments of several CEOs who discussed the challenges and opportunities facing the biopharma industry. The article says that one pharmaceutical CEO, Dr. Robert Clark of Pulmotrix, said, quote, We are looking for a more streamlined process while at the same time thinking about the socioeconomic incentives that can be put in place especially to help small companies as we move forward in trying to take early-stage products and get them to the point where they can get to later clinical development with the FDA, unquote. Dr. Robert Manzello, president of the drug company Abzina, said, quote, We should look at the European Medicines Agency regulatory framework as one that enables faster reviews yet still emphasizes product safety. They allow safe products to be released and in a fraction of the time as the U.S. FDA. While wholesale change of the U.S. policies won't be immediate, an effort to examine a streamlined approach for the U.S. regulatory process would be most welcomed in 2017, unquote. In the same speech, the president also urged Congress to join him and, quote, work to bring down the artificially high price of drugs and bring them down immediately, unquote. Fair enough. But just to be fair and balanced, and to demonstrate I am not an apologist for the president, let me present a science story which affects me personally and annoys the blazes out of me at that. According to a budget memo obtained by the Washington Post, the White House is proposing to cut the budget of NOAA by 17%. For those of you who don't know, what is NOAA? NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And pretty simply put, 
NOAA scientists study the skies and the oceans. In the U.S., NOAA is primarily concerned with predicting weather. They're probably the prime weather prediction agency in the U.S., but they do a lot more than that. What you're thinking is, all right, so what? So they're cutting this agency's budget by 17%. I mean, it's not like the NIH or anything. You may recognize NOAA, again, as that primary weather agency for the U.S., but it's more than that. It funds all sorts of oceanographic and coastal research that is sorely needed. Among the specified cuts in the president's budget, the administration proposed eliminating the entire budget of the $73 million Sea Grants program. The Sea Grants program is a network of 33 colleges and university programs that tackle conservation and research. The memo, which came from the Office of Management and Budget, is part of the annual White House budget process. The executive branch directs agencies to draft budgets to submit to Congress based on White House priorities. The final numbers could change as administration officials and later Congress negotiate specifics. But the proposal to zero out Sea Grant's funding suggests that the program may be fighting for its life. Those who work with Sea Grant including me, I have gotten a Sea Grant in the past. Well, those who have worked with Sea Grant say it has fueled the growth in coastal regions of aquaculture industries that didn't even exist 10 or 20 years ago. Scientists and businessmen alike compare the impact of the program on coastal businesses to that of uh, land-grant universities in improving agricultural production in the U.S., and while Sea Grant hasn't been around as long as the land-grant model, uh, proponents say that the loss of the support would be seriously dramatic. Sea Grants doesn't just pay for lab-based campus research. It also funds educational outreach and work on practical problems that are faced by uh, coastal communities, and often with the direct input of local businesses. I don't know why any sane group of individuals would want to get rid of sea grants, especially given that it's a drop in the bucket in the federal budget. I mean, it's not even a lousy hundred million dollars. Sea grants is an extremely practical program. 95% of the money that they appropriate goes directly to state programs. Only 5% actually stays in Washington. All right, let me climb up on my high horse as if I wasn't already there. What do we do with this money? We solve problems that are identified by local businesses, residents, and communities. We make things better for coastal communities. The work funded by the Sea Grants program is geared toward local environmental problems as well as industrial needs. And all the while, I mean, we're doing good science. Why get rid of it? I, I just don't get it. All scientific research is not a waste of money, as some people believe. The Washington Post says that Bob Reholt, the executive director of the East Coast Shellfish Growers Association, claims that the proposed cuts to NOAA funding were quote-unquote potential job killers. In an interview, Reholt says, Our industry can be an engine of job growth in many ways, but many of these proposals will damage our ability to grow shellfish. There are lots of measures we could take to create jobs, but stripping our national investment in marine science is not going to help, unquote. The Post says if funding for research at university coastal extensions is eliminated, 
then that research won't be done by the private sector. Most aquaculture enterprises are small, family-owned companies. They don't have the money or the resources to do that kind of research. In the shellfish and seafood industry, the Sea Grant work has involved improvements in sanitation, quality control, and the selection of proper gear for harvesting things like shellfish, oysters. And again, I don't get it. Why get rid of something that has helped science and industry alike? I guess that we can only hope that Congress rejects the cuts to NOAA and sends a message that science, jobs, and the coasts of the United States are actually important. Well, if we scrub the coasts here, perhaps there's hope elsewhere on other coasts. Next story. Water on Mars. Dr. Mary Bork from Trinity College in Dublin has discovered a patch of land in an ancient valley on Mars that appears to have been flooded by water in the not-too-distant past. In so doing, her research group has pinpointed a prime target to begin searching for past life forms on the Red Planet. Bork's findings were published in last month's Geophysical Research Letters. She says, quote, On Earth, desert dune fields are periodically flooded by water in areas of fluctuating groundwater, and where lakes, rivers, and coasts are found in proximity. These periodic floods leave telltale patterns behind them. You can imagine our excitement when we scanned satellite images of an area on Mars and saw the same pattern calling card suggesting that water had been present in the relatively recent past. Unquote. In a remote sensing study of the Namib Desert on Earth, Bork's research group had previously noted these patterns, which they called arcuate striations. They found these on the surface between migrating sand dunes. Fieldwork subsequently showed that these arcuate striations resulted from dune sediments that had been geochemically cemented by salts left behind by evaporating groundwater. These dune sediments later became relatively immobile, which means they are left behind as the dunes continue to migrate downwind. Dr. Bork added, quote, Following our work in Namibia, we hypothesized that on Mars, similar arcuate striations exposed on the surface between dunes were also indications of fluctuating levels of salty groundwater during a time when dunes were actively migrating down the valley. These findings are hugely significant. Firstly, the Martian sand dunes show evidence that water may have been active near Mars's equator potentially in the not-too-distant past. And secondly, this location is now a potential geological target for detecting past life forms on the Red Planet, which is important to those involved in selecting sites for future missions. Unquote. The next story is a vaguely disturbing one from the journal Nature that came out at the end of February. How does a virus know when to kill or save an infected cell? Now, that may sound like a strange question, but let me clarify. Bacteriophages are viruses that attack and kill bacteria. Yes, even bacteria have their own viruses. When a bacteria is infected, one of two things may happen. If the conditions are favorable, then a full infection will take place when the virus's DNA gets into the cell. The virus will reproduce inside the cell, making multiple copies, and eventually it'll break open the bacterial cell, lysing it, as the term is, and the cell will die when the viruses pop out of it like 
microscopic alien chest bursters. If conditions are unfavorable, and no one is quite sure what that means, then the virus will instead insert its DNA genome into that of the bacterial genome. The bacteria may then go on through generation after generation of replication with the so-called provirus as part of its own DNA. This is called lysogeny. At some point when the virus thinks it is more favorable, it may pop out its DNA and become active once again and enter the lytic cycle, destroying the bacteria. It is a bit like having a time bomb stashed away in your own DNA. This process of lysis or lysogeny is not just isolated to viruses and infect bacteria, though, in case you thought this has nothing to do with us. There are several human viruses that work exactly the same way. Probably the most well-known of those is herpes, a retrovirus. The decision point for entering lysogenic or lytic phases has long been somewhat unclear. However, scientists have recently reported in Nature a mechanism for how the virus can make this decision. And actually, it has to do with a form of communication, oddly enough. Using the bacteria Bacillus subtilis as a model, Dr. Rotem Sorek and his colleagues at the Weissman Institute investigated this phenomenon in more detail and identified a peptide that appears to protect bacterial cells from lysis after infection by a bacteriophage. In fact, this peptide, which Sorek's lab coined Arbitrium, turned out to be released by phages after they entered the lysogenic cycle. And instead of protecting bacteria per se, it told other phages to become lysogenic instead of going lytic. Arbitrium allows the viruses to perceive their population density and change their behavior accordingly. Who would have thunk this of viruses? Ultimately, it's the first known communication mechanism between viruses, and it may be a way for these viruses to continue infecting future generations of bacteria. It also may lead to treatments for humans that are infected with similarly life-cycled uh, viruses. Next story. All right, snails seem pretty helpless as far as the rest of the animal kingdom is concerned. So you may think the next story is quite interesting. Or if you're not very interested in snails, you may not. But natural selection has equipped predators with an amazing armory, teeth, claws, venom. And in turn, prey can defend themselves with, well, their own venom or toxins, shells, spikes. Of all the weapons displayed by predators on the attack and the defensive countermeasures involved by prey, a snail's shell might not look very impressive at all. Dr. Yuta Mori of Hokkaido University in Japan suggests in the journal Scientific Reports that we may have underestimated the snail's armor and just what it can tell us about speciation or how species form. The shells of the Carafto helix, the land snail, vary in size and color and shape. And because they look so different, some Carafto helix species have been assigned to different genera until researchers had realized that these snails are anatomically and genetically actually indistinguishable. Given that these snails live in almost identical microhabitats and can coexist in some regions, how do they 
evolve such diverse shell forms? Well, Maury suspected that predation may play a vital role. And to find out whether predation promotes phenotypic radiation in these snails, Maury studied several carafto-helix species from populations in Japan and Russia. Her team observed the behavior of snails when they were nudged with a pair of fine tweezers or housed with a predatory beetle. Two very different defensive strategies emerged. Some snails behaved just like many snails in our gardens would, retreating into their shells and using them like shields to keep the marauding beetles at bay. But other species did something surprising. They actually fought back, which is not what you expect of a snail. What they did is, is they, they rhythmically swung their shells to and fro and bashed the beetles onto their backs. If predator-prey interactions helped drive the phenotypic radiation we see in these snails, then we would expect these differences in behavior correlate with morphological variations in shells. To see whether that's the case, Maury characterized several shell traits, such as height and diameter, and then related these traits to defensive behavior. She found that beetle-bashing snails have wider relative shell apertures. This makes sense given that a narrow shell entrance may be great for keeping predators out, but wider apertures allow for a muscular body capable of swinging a shell like a battle club. Additionally, shells used like shields tend to have a smaller diameter overall, suggesting that a narrow shell offers a more secure retreat. The study tells us that shells can serve as shields or clubs and that snails can go on the attack. But the key advance made by the paper is in showing how predator-prey interactions actually can drive how species evolve. Phylogenetic analyses show that the passive or retreating and the active or beetle-bashing strategies of defense and the associated shell forms evolved independently in island and continental populations of snails. While researchers have long suggested that predation pressures could drive speciation, it has been unclear how that actually might work. Uh, but Maury shows us how anti-predator adaptations can promote changes in the phenotype of the species, which may be a first key step toward the process of speciation. Okay, every once in a while, I will come across a science story that is so bizarro that it is a bit hard to imagine how anyone thought up the idea in the first place. And the next story is one of those. I guess it can't be too strange, or the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences wouldn't have published it, with a title like In Vivo Polymerization and Manufacture of Wires and Supercapacitors in Plants. Well, it sounds pretty scientific and serious. That is until you actually read it. It came out of the lab of Dr. Magnus Berggren of Linköping University in Sweden. And as usual, sorry about my lousy pronunciations. Picture the classic first date. The guy brings the girl vibrant flowers, a lovely gesture to set the mood. However, today, most of us want something a bit more practical. Perhaps you could bring your paramour a spare charger to prevent her smartphone from dying by the end of your date. Ah, if only there were a sensible yet romantic first date gift. Well, Dr. Berggren has thought of that. 
Berggren posits that in the future it may be possible to charge a cell phone using a bouquet of flowers. Roses. Berggren's research group of bioengineers recently developed a prototype rose supercapacitor. This electronic plant, which they call an e-plant, can store energy and repeatedly charge devices with no loss of power. Berggren says, quote, Plants are dispensable parts of our lives and our ecosystem. Roses are everywhere, and in particular, have a great structure to interface with electronics, unquote. Uh, I guess that's why I'm not a famous researcher. I would have never thought of turning roses into a storage battery. Actually, I'm not sure who would have thought of that. Anyway, Berggren injected a conductive polymer solution into the rose's vascular system that would wire throughout the entire plant. Part of this polymerization effect was catalyzed by the rose's own defense mechanism, which viewed the polymer as a weak pathogen and localized it to the xylem tubes of the plants. Once the circuitry was in place, the researchers placed two gold electrodes at the end of the stem where two parallel xylem wires were located. Then they charged the rose using a flow of electrons. Going beyond proof of concept, Berggren wants to tackle energy harvesting not just from a, ro a single rose storage system. He wants to do this in plants that are growing in soil. The present system was a severed rose already on its way to death, so the team wants to compare live-rooted systems with the plucked dying plant. From the rose, Berggren also plans to branch out and test other plants and potentially build fuel cells in a variety of flora. Berggren finishes with, quote, The rose is symbolic of many things. Now its purpose as a power plant will hopefully help us extend our technology further into other abundant plant systems, such as trees, which could be a great alternative energy source. Sure. Okay. Soon visiting the botanic garden or walking through dense forests with your paramour may be more of an electrifying first date. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that. You guys know I have the capacity for far worse revolting punnage. Okay, I hear the groans out there. Sorry. I'll cease and desist. Last story of the night. Well, if you were waiting for a sexy last story this evening, wait no longer. They say the brain is the sexiest organ, so this next story should put you on the edge of your seat. Eh, maybe not. Dr. Martin Dressler of the Max Planck Institute has published an article in the journal Neuron this month entitled, quote, Mnemonic Training Reshapes Brain Networks to Support Superior Memory, unquote. That title doesn't mean too much until you know what his research group did. Dressler found that just six weeks of intensive study can turn an average person into a memory, memory master. master. Okay, he uses the word memory, memory master. master. Not me. To me, that sounds like a villain from one of the worst DC comics. But I will continue to use Dressler's term. Dressler says, quote, The brain is plastic. Through use, we have shown it can change in remarkable ways, unquote. So Dressler and his group set up an initial test where he pitted the memories of a group of 17 memory experts 
who'd placed high in the World Memory Championships, I didn't know such things existed, against a group of average Joes and Janes with, well, run-of-the-mill memories. In the initial test, 20 minutes after seeing a list of 72 words, the experts remembered an average of 70.8 words. The non-experts caught on average only about 39.9 words, which frankly is pretty good in my opinion because I probably would have remembered 3.9 words. Anyway, in subsequent matchups, some of the regular schlubs got varying levels of help. The 51 in the novice memory group were split into three subgroups. A third of those 51 people spent six weeks learning the method of loci, a memorization strategy used by ancient Greek and Roman orators. To use the technique, a person must imagine an elaborate mental scene, such as a palace or a familiar walking path, and then populate it with memorable items. New information can then be placed onto this scaffold, offering a way to quickly see long lists of items. Another third of the participants spent six weeks training to improve short-term memory, performing a tricky task that required people to simultaneously keep track of a series of locations they see and numbers they hear. The last third of the participants, essentially the negative controls, had no training at all. After the training, the people who learned the method of loci performed nearly as well as the memory experts, but the rest didn't show those improvements. Before and after training, non-experts underwent scans that pinpointed brain areas that were active at the same time, an indication that these brain areas work together closely. Dressler looked at 2,485 connections in brain networks important for memory and visual and spatial thinking. Training in the method of loci seemed to reconfigure many of those connections, making some of the connections stronger and others weaker. The overall effect of training was to make the average brains, quote, look like those of the world's best memorizers, unquote. The results suggest that large-scale changes across the brain, as opposed to changes in individual areas, drive the increased memory capacity. These new memory skills were still obvious four months after training ended, particularly for those whose brain behavior became similar to that of the memory experts. The researchers didn't scan participants' brains four months out, so they didn't know whether the brain retains its reshaped connections. No such brain changes or big increases in memory skills were seen in the other groups. Mind you, all of this is fascinating. I have argued, especially with my lovely wife, that memory tricks are meaningless as far as natural memory goes. She has an excellent memory and uses number tricks to remember the birth dates of everyone she knows, including our couple of dozen nieces and nephews. But my opinion has always been that either you remember or you don't. Tricks are fine and dandy for specific things that have to be remembered, but they don't reflect your ability to recall unaided in a normal fashion from day to day. Well, at least according to Dressler's results, I may be wrong. Dressler says that, quote, initially a technique like loci may appear to be a trick, but in the long term, you are reshaping memory and the way you remember. You are changing how your brain functions, and what initially appears unnatural slowly reshapes synapses until it changes the way you think, and it becomes part of the background of your thoughts. 
then it is a trick no longer, unquote. Improvements in mnemonic memory, like other types of cognitive training, might not improve a broader range of thinking skills. That is, even though you may have a good memory, you may be an idiot with a good memory, hence an idiot savant. Certainly, having a good memory could help you move toward being smarter, but that is entirely dependent upon your ability to think in a logical way and put two and two together. You can certainly be quite smart and have a lousy memory. No one ever accused Albert Einstein of being a memory, memory master. master. Unfortunately, Dresler's current study can't answer bigger questions about whether brain training has more general benefits. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Continue to pray for the U.S. FDA, and now include NOAA in your invocations. Always wear rubber gloves while tending those new Pikachu varietal roses. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, sir, what can I say? Always a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. So yes, main fiction. Like I say, this story was originally written in Hebrew and translated in English by our good friends Lav Lavi Tidar. I'll give you a little heads up about Niri Yanev. Niri Yanev is an Israeli science fiction writer, musician, and on special occasions, film director. He's notorious for his past as chief editor of two Israelis' leading science fiction magazines and also for his present habit of drawing chickens in public. Lavi Tidor is the author of the Jerwood Fiction Uncovered Prize winning and Premio Roma nominee, A Man Lies Dreaming in 2014, the World Fantasy Award winning A Summer in 2011, and the critically acclaimed and Sulin Award nominee, The Violent Century 2013. His latest novel, Central Station 2016, he is the author of many other novels novellas and short stories. I would just like to put into there that Lavi is in Worlds Without Walls. Yes, my little Kickstarter project. All getting up and running now. now. Got the hard work to do now and get that sorted out. I've had a little two weeks off. I've given myself a little two weeks. So now I'm kind of going to knuckle down and get all those things wrote out. <laughs> left rants, bloody hell. 17 left to do. This story is narrated by my good friend, Mr. Jonathan Danz. Jonathan Danz exists in a parallel dimension that looks suspiciously like West Virginia. When he's not trundling over a rock or root on his velocipede, he labours to hammer stories out of unruly words. With the help of his wife and his daughter, he managed to keep track of his car keys, his priorities and his mind. Should you find yourself in the dusty corners of cyberspace, you may glimpse words and coffee, an occasional repository of his thought mud found at jonathandans.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Benjamin Schneider's Little Greys by Nir Yaniv Translated from the Hebrew by Lavi Tidar When Benjamin Schneider came to my clinic and complained of mysterious coils on his left wrist, I wasn't overly surprised. The term hypochondriac may have become overused years ago, but Benjamin nevertheless lived and acted as its perfect archetype. He had been that way ever since he was a child. I remember the first time he came to me, 
when I was still a minor family GP at the National Health Clinic in town. He was about 14, short for his age, thin, curly, and bespectacled, and a thorn was stuck, mortifyingly, in his behind. His mother, Mrs. Romina Schneider, did not spare him her wrath. Every time something strange has to happen to you, she said, and the embarrassed child gritted his teeth and gave me a pleading look. His mother, too, gave me a look, the kind an older woman gives a younger woman she doesn't trust, doesn't want to trust, but is forced to, if only by the vagaries of the National Health Service. I don't remember how I got her away from the room. One of the nurses helped me, perhaps. But five minutes later, the thorn was removed to the relief of everyone concerned. Benjamin's grateful gaze was something I could never forget, if only because, for years afterwards, I received it from him, on average, about once a week. The week after the thorn incident, for instance, he grazed the back of his neck on barbed wire, I had no idea how, and came to me to clean up the wound. I asked him if they didn't have iodine at home, and he shrugged and didn't reply. In fact, he never talked about himself beyond, more or less, the medical reasons for his current visit. Every week he visited me, with one reason or another, as he grew up from a boy to a teen and then a man, still thin, still curly, and bespectacled. When I opened my own clinic twelve years later, Benjamin was my first client. His medical problems were always a little odd. He was bruised in unlikely places, his right ear, for instance suffered diseases like an arthritis that had the same symptoms as gum disease, didn't respond to medicine, and disappeared after a week, and indeed always healed miraculously, and returned to me to verify the fact, and perhaps discover some new ailments in the process. It is possible other doctors would have ridiculed him and his various ills, and certainly my cooperation with it and with him, but I couldn't bring myself to be so cruel to him. The coils, however, and despite our long history together, were something new. I had sent him for an x-ray several days before, at his insistence, in the brown paper folder of the National Health, searched through them for a minute or two, and then found what he was looking for. I spread the print over the white fluorescent board designed for that purpose and examined it, not expecting to find anything out of the ordinary or at least of the ordinary as considered in the case of Benjamin Schneider. But to my surprise, something was there. Two grayish coils, half transparent, testifying that whatever they were made of was not solid enough to completely block the x-rays. And there was something else that was odd in the picture. But to begin with, I couldn't figure out what it was. Does it hurt? I asked. He shook his head. His arthritis had already disappeared. I examined the wrist myself, but externally it was not possible to discern anything out of the ordinary. I told him I had to think about it, and to come back to me in a few days. I looked at him, worried he might be upset by that, but he just nodded and left, satisfied, to all appearances, that his fate was in good hands. How little did you know, Benjamin? How little did we know? I had quite a lot of work to do in the office that day, so I took the print with me home afterwards. I didn't have a fluorescent board at home, so I hung the print before a desk lamp. I looked at it all through dinner, and for a change didn't wait in vain for the phone to ring. The coils were odd. 
but there was also something familiar about them. And these were two separate things, the strangeness and the familiarity. After a while, I lost my concentration and watched a little TV. One of the channels was showing a horror B-movie, and I watched it disinterestedly, as my mind floated here and there on its own, without my being fully conscious of it. It's a way as good as any of dealing with problems, but this time the solution came not from that, but rather from the tiny part of me that was actually watching the television. One of the monsters there was sawing through the arm of another monster, and I noticed immediately the cheap special effect, the saw and the hand about to be cut, were two separate images filmed at different times, and joined artificially. It was easy to see that the saw didn't really touch the arm, and it was the same phenomenon that I could see in Benjamin's x-ray. The coils looked like an artificial addition to the picture. There was something calming about this, of course. Incidents like this are not common, but sometimes, despite all precautionary measures, they happen. A foreign object finds its way between the camera and the subject, the result being spread in all its glory before my reading lamp. If Benjamin still needed it, I would send him for a repeat scan, and if not, all to the better. And still, the coils seemed familiar. On his next visit, I explained all this to him, apart from the strange feeling I had about the coils, and he seemed pretty happy. Another problem occupied him by now. He had something in his eyes. That's how he put it. And I couldn't get a better explanation out of him. I examined his eyes and could see nothing out of the ordinary, apart from a redness that could have been caused by a thousand and one things, most of them not worthy of attention. But when I examined his right eye through an ophthalmoscope, I saw it, a tiny gray circle, barely seen against the redness of the cornea. There was one in his left eye, too. They also seemed, as hard as it was for me to believe when watching something that was real and not a scan, unconnected. If the coils in his arm seemed like foreign bodies that entered by mistake into the field of vision of the X-ray camera, then the circles in his eyes seemed like foreign bodies that entered by mistake into the field of vision of reality. I think I managed to hide the shock I felt. I gave Benjamin eye drops, closed the clinic early, and went home to rest, and watch TV, and think. And in the morning I arrived at the clinic two hours before opening time and dismantled the ophthalmoscope. I examined all the parts through a magnifying glass, but found nothing to explain the little gray circles that were similar to the little gray coils, that were similar to nothing I knew, even though my brain insisted otherwise. I didn't know how to reassemble the device and decided to just buy another. I had money, after all, and besides, it was tax-deductible. I spent the rest of the time before my first patient's appearance in thoughts of this nature that were relaxing in their simplicity and mundanity, but which led me nevertheless, in one way or another, to the mystery of Benjamin's gray parts, thoughts that were only halted with the appearance of the patient himself. Benjamin, I said, surprised. He never came to me two days in a row. Is everything all right? Usually, on his visits, he would merely point at the source of pain or discomfort, speaking as little as possible, and let me complete the diagnosis on my own. Not today. I have a crop circle, he said. Excuse me? 
A crop circle, you know, like the ones aliens make. Benjamin, I said, but he already launched into an explanation that was exceptional, both in its length and its contents. Crop circles are giant circles and sometimes more complex shapes that are formed in wheat or cornfields by the pressing down of the stalks. All kinds of attributes are ascribed to them, and stories are told of strange things that have happened to the stalks. There are people who believe that they are proof of the existence of aliens. The rest of the world, of course, assumes it's merely a practical joke. Fine, I said. I don't really believe in aliens either, but let's get back to you, Benjamin. He looked at me. I have a crop circle, he said, again, on my tummy. I stared at him, thinking of whether I needed to send him to see a psychiatrist. Then I laid him down on the examination table, turned on the strongest lamp, and opened his shirt. I asked him to point to the place where the circle was, and he did. Despite everything, I needed all my willpower not to laugh. Benjamin, I said, that's your navel, your belly button. It's a crop circle. Look at the hairs there. See what happened to them. It's only natural that the hairs around, I said, and then I saw. They were bent, or stood erect in unnatural angles, circles within circles around the navel. But more than that, they were gray. I passed my hand over his stomach, touching them. I wasn't sure I was touching them all. It seemed to me that some passed through my palm, as if they were air, as if I was air. It was not a pleasant feeling. Under my hand, Benjamin shuddered. I felt a kind of electric current, something passing between us through my spread fingers, touching, not touching, his crop circle. Many things were suddenly clear, many things. Little clues, grazed necks, strange illnesses, illogical pains, aliens. What do you think, he said. Am I going to be all right? I looked at him, straight into his eyes. They were gray. There were strange geometries behind his eyes, and I thought I understood them. I didn't say anything. His eyes grew large. Only after a moment I realized he was afraid, and only a little after that I realized he was afraid of me. You too, Dr. Katz, he said. You too. And he passed out. I climbed on the chair and from there onto the table, and stood there high, looking at the thin, silent man who had spent the majority of his life with imaginary diseases that were, at the end, quite real. Maybe he was in love with his diseases. Maybe he was in love with me. It didn't matter, not now, with the aliens controlling him and me. I gritted my teeth and jumped, head first into the crop circle, into his navel. He still comes to visit me every week. Right after they released him from the hospital, he came to see me. How nice of him. Maybe he's still in love with me, even after I jumped into him. They told me the doctors managed to recover his digestive system. My head, though. He comes to visit me every week, and the little grays are in his eyes, on his hands, forming and growing, 
growing and spreading all over his body. I have no mirror here, and I can't look at my body, but I think it's the same with me. I think I hope it is so. It's hard to be sure with a head like mine. I think I see the world in black and white, or gray. Apart from Benjamin, no one would understand, of course. I know exactly what the medical thinking is. I know exactly what the people who surround me would think of anything I would say. I know what I would have thought. I'm well behaved, but that doesn't help. Only Benjamin, only Benjamin could help me. He and the little greys, the growing greys, the great big greys. Now, when I see the look in his grey eyes, when I imagine the touch of his hands, the coils on his wrists, beyond the reinforced glass window separating us, beyond the jacket enfolding me, I know that he loves me. I love him too. But most of all, I love the greys. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Neri Yanov. Neri, thank you so much. And a big thank you to Lavi Tidar and the one and only Mr. Jonathan Dans for making it all come alive. So that is the end of our month special, three-week special of this new translations section there. Big thank you to Jeremy for pulling it all together. And, and actually, Jeremy's doing, been doing all this. I keep on, you know, like messaging on Facebook and that, and he's got at the moment the most horrendous internet speed. He doesn't know what's wrong with it, but they're coming out to fix it. And and I can tell because even emails just like grinding them out to get to us, you know. And it's funny enough, now on Starship Sova, it happened on the 23rd of March, we got fiber into the village, into my little, they actually put it in. And I wasn't connected up to that part of it for some whatever reason. There was like a bit of a conflict between where my cabinet box was going and the traffic lights in the village are the one set of traffic lights and there was a conflict. So they've had this meeting, you know, BT and whoever to kind of put the, oh, it's, I guess it's BT and the traffic road, traffic management to get this sorted out. They blitzed in and put this new fibre cabinet in and now we're, you know, kind of, hooked up and oh man 76 down and i don't know it's 20 upload and that's the key man since i started that to get upload do you know what i mean oh, man it's like all the way through starship so it's held us back you know what i mean even just uploading a, an, an audio show takes ages do you know what i mean it's like pitiful and then to try and do, you know, if you remember, you know, somewhere around 2008, I started doing like kind of video online video conferences using some webinar software, I forget now, go to, go to webinar. And we did some great ones, but there was always that case like, oh, it's good, it's good, you know, and I would, I would kind of get cut out because my upload speed wasn't that good. And even, you know, sofa notes, you know, and it's so nerve wracking when it's live and, you, you know, you've got everything planned and everybody's there ready to go. And then you kind of, you know, your internet cuts out. And then, you know, along comes the son wanting internet and the daughter and it's dad, dad, the Xbox. So the 23rd, it was switched on and just fantastic. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, you know, 
It's what I've always wanted for this show, you know, to get a fast internet speed. So I've never uploaded anything. So this show, and I don't know what, how it'll go up, you know, 20 megabyte upload. I'm hoping, and I'm recording it as well. In Now, get back to us on this one as well. I'm recording in stereo, and I've never really done that as well because of the, the file size. So I can now upload it quick as out. But if it's going to cause hassle for you, you know, I can just put it back to mono. Do you know what I mean? Do we need stereo when we're doing stories? There's a thought. You know what I mean? Let, let us know about that as well. Because I can certainly... Because my... I can I can do it and I render it and all, you know, squash the, the file size down. But it takes now... In stereo, I've just noticed, it takes a while to do that on this machine that I'm doing. So it might be easier just for me anyways to do it in mono. But let us know anyways. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, again, point this out once more. Big thank you to Jeremy pulling all this together and Ralph over there who's kind of behind the scenes of Starships over making this all happen. Thank you so much, gentlemen. And everyone who's taken part, you know what I mean? It's just been, it's really, it's lovely to discover new works, especially in this kind of quirky little way, do you know what I mean, as well? Writers from all over the world, that's what we want, man. That's what we want, and that's, you know what I mean? No, again, no more walls, please, for God's sake. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Get out there, bye.